0: recorded in the book of Esther. For the sake of historical continuity, the Jews kept Ezra and Nehemiah together. Actually, the Jews called it first and second Ezra. It wasn't until the 4th century AD a man named Jerome, Catholic theologian, who gave the name of second Ezra, he gave the name Nehemiah to the book that the Jews called second Ezra. A single story begins in Ezra and ends up in Nehemiah. The reason I say this is because we've had to, by necessity, do this in a little bit of a chopped up fashion. But Nehemiah is essentially the conclusion of the book of Ezra. Uh, The history between Ezra and Nehemiah both records a period of about 110 years, from 538 B.C. to 430 B.C. In 445, which is the 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign, we'll study that just a moment, chapter 1, Nehemiah learns of the conditions in Jerusalem, and it leads him to request permission of the king to go back, back to Judah and to rebuild the walls around the city. He arrives in Jerusalem in 444 B.C., and within 52 days of his arrival, the city walls were completed. Those of you that have been to Jerusalem know what what an outstanding accomplishment that would have been. In 432 B.C., Nehemiah goes back to Persia, returns to Artaxerxes. We see that in chapter 13, verse 6. He came back to Jerusalem. He doesn't stay in Persia. He comes back to Jerusalem probably in about a year or so after he had gone back to Persia. The record of his reforms... Following that return is recorded in the last chapter of the book. Nehemiah is a person who gets things done. Even though the book spans about 15 years altogether, most of the activity in Nehemiah takes place in one year, in chapters 1 through 12, and then in one year, or two years perhaps, in chapter 13. So it's all it spans a long time, but most of it is narrowly recorded. The people that Ezra Ezra and Nehemiah both are ministering to probably numbered about 97,000. They were the ones that returned from the captivity. They're the remnant of believers that went back. They did go back, and we spent a little bit of time in Esther talking about the fact that Esther and Mordecai had not gone back, so they weren't obedient. These people had gone back, which was admirable and was commendable. But once they got back, they were wandering aimlessly. With regard to their spiritual life, so they had a, they had a single act of obedience, but they hadn't had follow up acts of obedience. Their spiritual life was not what it should have been. God had wanted His people to return to the law. That's what got them in trouble in the first place, because they had left the Mosaic law, they had left the plan of God, and He wanted to, them to return. That's not really going to happen until we get to, uh, to Nehemiah chapter eight, where the law is read. It leads to the praying of the Levites in Nehemiah chapter nine and the making of a covenant in Nehemiah chapter 10. The sovereignty of God that began in Ezra in reshaping the nation is going to be finished or it's going to be continued when we get to Nehemiah. Ezra was primarily a spiritual leader. Nehemiah is primarily a political leader. However, while Ezra had some political stroke, I guess you'd call it, Nehemiah also had some spiritual stroke. In general, Ezra was the theologian, Nehemiah was the governor. Nehemiah was a, along with Ezra, probably were spiritual giants. And, and again, to, to think back a couple of weeks to our study in Esther, and was not trying to be offensive in any way, but, but the reality is that both Esther and Mordecai were patriots, but they weren't really spiritually mature. That's one of the reasons why you don't see anything about prayer and, and petition to God, and at least you see something about fasting, but not, not like you're going to see here in the very first chapter. You're going to see a big difference in the very first chapter here between Nehemiah and Mordecai, for example. Both were great men, but one was, was most likely much more spiritually mature than the other. Nehemiah was not a king. He wasn't a priest. He wasn't a prophet. In many, many senses of the word, he was just an ordinary citizen. Whatever ordinary means. But he was a common man. Nothing wrong with that. He, but he was a common man who held a cabinet-level position under King Artaxerxes, who's the Persian monarch at the time that this text opened. He became the governor of Judah later. So again, he's more political than he is spiritual, although he's a spiritual leader who is functioning in politics. That can happen, and it does with Nehemiah. Generally speaking, the kings of Israel had failed. In Israel's past history, the kings have failed. There's no, there's no king right now, of course, because the nation's in exile. Very few kings were positive kings with regard to their spiritual lives. As a result of this, according to Deuteronomy chapter 28, if the people obeyed the laws of God, they would be prospered. If they disobeyed the laws of God, they would be cursed. Well, they were cursed. 586 B.C., the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar come and they wipe out Jerusalem. As part of that wiping out, they tear the temple down, but they also tear the walls down of the city. And this is just not passing information. This is going to be information that's germane to the study of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a very interesting fellow. He was a man of God, and he was a man who lived and walked by faith. He had an attitude of faith that never wavered. He wanted to see God's purposes fulfilled. In a way, he's kind of like one of our founders. One of my favorite founding fathers, United States, is George Washington. George Washington was not necessarily the the greatest strategist. He might not have been the greatest tactician. He he certainly wasn't the greatest battlefield general that we've ever had in the United States. Um, He might not have even even been the best statesman that we had. But he ended up being perhaps the greatest American that we've ever had, at least in my humble opinion. That's that's all I mean, just my humble opinion. Because George Washington learned from his mistakes— And George Washington never quit. Never. He never quit. He was persistent and he was consistent. And in in some ways, Nehemiah reminds me of George Washington. Because he was persistent. He was a man of faith, but he was also a man of action. He acts cautiously. When we get to chapter 5, you'll see once he gets to Jerusalem, he examines the wall secretly and silently. And then he divides the work in a very organized manner and gives each family the work of building the wall that's right in front of where their house is, which means it's in their best interest to work hard to build that particular section. You wouldn't want to have a wall all the way around the city except for right where your house is. So he was smart. He was a very smart leader. But he was a courageous leader as well. We'll see that in chapter 13. He started by himself single-handedly, but then he sticks to it in a group effort until things are finished. He doesn't compromise. That's one of the things that a good spiritual leader won't do, is compromise. He didn't compromise with the enemies outside the wall, and he doesn't compromise with the enemies inside the wall. You know, he had to coming in from both ends. And that's the way you get a wall built around an ancient city in 52 days. You would expect something like that to take more like a year. But 52 days, and they got it done. He settled the people in the city and the suburbs, so he's a good governor. He expounded and enforced the law, which made him a great governor. See, not only did he get things done from a secular viewpoint, but he, he had an overlay of the spiritual over the secular. And, and actually, made might even say a foundation as well. And so that's what made Nehemiah, Nehemiah. Nehemiah proves that seemingly impossible things are possible through both hard work and prayer. When people determined to trust and obey God, and and when they put his interests first. There are two very important words here, prayer and hard work. Nehemiah proves that seemingly impossible things are possible through prayer and hard work. When people determine to trust and obey God, that's what Nehemiah did. He was persistent, he was consistent, he was a man of faith, but he was also a man of action. That's important. We have to put God's interests first. Now the idea is prayer and hard work. And this is a problem. We have the, the problem that we need to face in, in a local church. It's also a problem we need to face in the Christian community. Do we act, or do we pray, or do we bit, do a little, little bit of both? Is it up to me? Is it up to God? Is it a partnership? How does this whole thing work? Nehemiah is going to show us. That prayer precedes action, but action should follow prayer. It's not as though if, if you're out of work and you decide, well, I, I need to maybe wake up one morning. Maybe I need to get a job. I'm kind of comfortable where I am in bed. So I think what I might do is I'm going to lay in bed here and I'm going to pray that the Lord will bring me a job. And you pray pretty fervently, you know, with all the these and the thous and the therefores and the wherefores and all that stuff. And you just said a really neat prayer. Something that would have impressed your friends if, if they could have heard it. And you say, well, okay, well, I think um, that's good. I'm going to take the phone off the hook and go back to bed because it's cold outside. Most of us would say, well, what a knucklehead. You're never going to find a job that way. And the person would say, well, whoa, whoa, wait, wait a minute. I'm not a knucklehead. I turned it over to the Lord. All right, he's going to find me that job. Well, maybe the Lord's saying, okay, that's fine. Why don't you open the paper and... See where there's the classified one ads, maybe take a look at a few of them, and then go to the job, and I'll help you with the interview. God never promised to get your sorry tail out of bed, carry you by the wings of an angel into the foreman's office, dress you, and tell you the things to say, and then make sure the person gives you the job. That's not the way it works, but that's the way we act like it works. We really do sometimes in Christianity, even in the local church. What we pray about, that's all we need to do. Well, we prayed for the poor. That's all we need to do. Well, no, maybe you need to give them a loaf of bread, too. And, and Nehemiah is going to show us that, that, yes, we need to pray. And the very first thing he's going to do after he sees that there's a problem, after he hears of it, and he, he is going to give one of the most passionate prayers that was recorded in the Scriptures. And then when he finishes the prayer, he's going to get up and go to work. He's going to go talk to the king. And then when he gets back, he's going to organize. He's going to do everything that God gifted him to do going to go to work. If you're an attorney, and I know many of you are in our church, how much sense would it make to have a really big case that's coming up in, on your docket and you say, well, Lord, this is a really, really big, big case. A lot of lives, a lot of people's prosperity is at stake. There's a lot of things at stake here. Lord, would you please I want you to win this case for me. We need to win this case, oh Majesty Lord. Would, let's win this case, and you might even oh, we got it. We got to win this case. The more times you say it, I guess it's more effective, right? We got to win this case, and then let's say, say, well, call up one of your buddies. Hey, you do anything for lunch today? He says, well, no. Actually, I'm preparing for a case. What are you doing? Well, no, I've already prayed. I'm going to win this case. You know, your clients would might appreciate it if you actually did some work on the case. Now, you tr- you want to pray about it, but then you need to get off your duff and work. Work is not a bad word. Work's a positive word, and Nehemiah is going to show us that. You know, it's, it's interesting in the scriptures. there's always this balance, isn't there? You know, there's a balance between what God is going to do and what he expects us to do. He does give us human energy. He gives us intellect. He gives us talents, and he expects us to use them. What he doesn't expect is for us to get out in front of him. And use only our intellect, our good looks, or our talent, or whatever it is. He's not expecting that. But he does expect us to use whatever it was he gave him after prayerfully bringing it before the Lord. And that's what we're going to see in this book. It's very, very important. Things that are seemingly impossible are possible. You know, it's seemingly impossible to rebuild that wall in 52 days. It's been laid bare since 586 B.C. It's 445 now in a long time, and you're going to rebuild it in 52 days? Well, yeah, but God empowered them to do it. But they still had to get out there and put bricks and mortar together and put that wall. The wall didn't build itself. God could do it, I guess, that way, but he probably would say, well, you know, I gave you energy. It might be good for you to do it. Like Nehemiah, we live in times of spiritual apathy. And we also live in times where believers often lack spiritual direction. What Nehemiah is going to do is he's going to go back there, and along with Ezra, he's going to give them spiritual direction. But we, just like the people back then, in a large way, we've lost our way. In a, in a very real sense, we've lost our way as a culture, and the reason we've lost our way as a culture is because we've lost our way as a church. And I'm not talking about local churches so much, I'm talking about the church universal. There are encouraging signs that this is changing. But it's still dark times. I mean, one of, the, one of the things that's encouraging me so much are things like the breakaway Bible study at Texas A&M. It's being led by a student of Will Johnson, in fact. 5,000 students, average 5,000 students at this Bible study. Every week, every Tuesday night. When the semester is new, 10,000 students at that Bible study. At a secular university like Texas A&M. Of course, a is a little different than some other universities, but that's phenomenal. That's fantastic. It's changing lives. And you know what he's doing, Ben Stewart's the guy that does this. And uh, Ben is a student at at theological seminary, about to graduate. But you know what Ben's doing up there? It's a really unique thing. He's preaching the word. <laughs> Isn't that a unique idea? Yeah. Now, now they have. He does it in a context that's very much hip to the, to the college group, but he's preaching the word. There's a guy named Brian McCracken who wrote an article in The Wall Street Journal. I bought his book as a result of reading the article. His book is called Hipster Christianity, and there's, you know, every book's going to have things you like, things you don't like. But one of the neat things about McCracken's book is that he, as a young 20s, mid-20s, somewhere in there, 25, 26, 27-year-old man, he's saying, how long is the church going to continue to insult us by thinking that all we want is to be entertained? Can you imagine how insulting that really is to people who are in their 20s? To think all we, all we need to do to get them into the church, we just need to get a really good band, and they're going to come. And he's saying, listen, a really good band is a nice thing, but that's not going to get us to come. We want something that we can sink our teeth into and that we can live by. They want the Word of God. And that's a very encouraging thing to me that somebody, a group, not just but a whole group of younger pastors are starting to stand up and say, enough of this nonsense. We want to get back to the Word of God because truth is where it's at. Truth is what we can live by. All this stuff that you've been feeding us, these sermonettes for Christianettes, is not going to work when times get really tough. And guess what? Times get tough in their lives, too. So they are encouraging signs within the Christian community to me. They're encouraging signs when we see things like that. But it's still, by and large, a dark place. Robbie Zacharias, who is a, a wonderful Christian cultural critic, and I mean critic in a good sense there, one who critiques the culture, says you can tell a lot by a culture by what makes it laugh and what makes it cry. You can, you can look at our movies and say, what are people laughing at? What are people crying at? You tell a lot about a culture. Peggy Newton said at one time, you also need to be careful when it comes to a culture with what you celebrate. One way you can tell if a culture is in dark times or in, in light times is by what it celebrates. What are, we, what are we embracing in a celebratory way? Even this last week, I saw a pr- perfect example of this. It was kind of providential the way it came up. Last Sunday night, I know a lot of you raced home so you could watch the Academy Awards. I think that was last Sunday night, wasn't it? Something like that. Maybe the Sunday before. But I understand it was an interesting show. But one of the things that happened this week, most of you know, uh, Governor Huckabee, who's a, also a Baptist preacher, made a comment that has just been, it's gone viral in terms of the, the response to it about Natalie Portman, the one, the, the very, very incredible actress that won the Academy Award for Best Actress. But when she went up to receive the Academy Award, it was obvious that she was quite pregnant. I mean, I don't know if you, if you get a little bit of pregnant or quite pregnant, but, but she was uh, let's put it like she was obviously pregnant. And one of the things that she did, and, and it was very touching. I have to admit, it's very, very touching. But as part of her acceptance speech, she thanked her boyfriend, it wasn't her husband, who he's going to be her husband, by the way, but it's not her husband right now, for giving her this wonderful gift. Now, when Governor Huckabee was asked about it this week, he said the same thing I just did. I love her. She's a tremendous actress. She does a really, really good job. But I did have one problem with one of the things that she said. Because I'm really just clapping in and there. was this wonderful look at this great gift that he gave her. Well, what Huckabee said was perhaps he should have given her a wedding ring first and then give her the baby second. At least that would be something we could celebrate. And, then, of course, his comments, I think, were, were taken a little bit out of their context. And now he's being... I am blasted by everybody what a Neanderthal he is. Not everybody. A lot of evangelicals are saying, yeah, that's actually the truth. We love her. But we ought not to celebrate having babies outside of wedlock. Because Natalie Portman has millions and millions of dollars, and she can hire all the nannies she wants to. But you go down to crisis Pregnancy Center in Pasadena or anywhere else around here, and you're going to see a lot of ladies that aren't really wealthy. They get pregnant out of wedlock because they see Natalie Portman in her $1,000 gown. You know, with this pregnancy and the, holding the ostrich, isn't that cool? And it doesn't work that way for them. Their pregnancy out of wedlock destroys their lives. But yet our culture celebrates that. Isn't it cool? No, it's not cool. If you worked in the trenches with some of these girls, you would realize it's not cool at all. So we have problems in our culture as well. We, we could use a spiritual type of Nehemiah in our culture to kind of get us going. But back to Nehemiah, and specifically, Nehemiah's focus in terms of the task that he's going to be given to do, he's going to do it in a very spiritual way, but his focus is going to be to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. And Ezra, if you'll recall, his focus was to rebuild the altar and rebuild the temple, and that got done. But the walls weren't up. Nehemiah will provide principled leadership when he goes back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls and get the job done. In the ancient world, walls around the city represented security. Without the walls, you didn't have any security. The better the walls were, generally speaking, the safer the people were. The walls in Jerusalem had been in ruins for over a hundred years. They had no security for over a hundred years. Jerusalem was defenseless, and guess what? That's the way their enemies wanted it. The enemies of Jerusalem were quite happy have Jerusalem be in a defenseless position. The returned exiles, way back in the beginning, had attempted to rebuild the walls. They knew it should be done, but the project failed. We studied that in Ezra chapter 4 because they had opposition. And this same king we're going to meet in just a moment, Artaxerxes, is the one that said you've got to stop building. Well, It would be helpful at this point to see where Persian history intersects with this book of Nehemiah. And in order to do that, it would, it would be helpful to, to have us remember some of the kings of Persia. We'll have an exam on this next week. It'll, uh, no, I'm just kidding about that. But it, it's actually not that hard. It might be intimidating but it, but it, at first glance, but it's not that hard. The first king that we met was King Cyrus. Cyrus is the one that ended up defeating the Babylonians. Cyrus is the one that issued the initial decree that they could go back and rebuild in the first place. The man who, su- who succeeds Cyrus is a man named Darius. He is not a direct offspring of Cyrus. So that's why I have this with a dotted line there. But the next man that comes up is Darius. And we saw him also in the book of Ezra. Now, Darius does have a son by the name of Xerxes. Remember him? We, that's Ahasuerus. That's Esther's husband. Xerxes is going to have a son named Artaxerxes. He's the one that's going to come up in Nehemiah. And Artaxerxes is not going to have a son named Darius II, but he's going to be succeeded by a man named Darius II. So these are the primary kings. There are a couple other little ones where these uh, dashes are. There are a couple other little ones that might have served for a month or uh, perhaps part of a year. But these are the primary kings that that are concerned with the biblical narrative. These These are the kings that are mentioned in the biblical narrative. Cyrus, Darius, Xerxes, Artaxerxes, and Darius II. The reign of Cyrus is associated with Ezra chapters 1 through 6. Xerxes is, of course, associated with the book of Esther, the book we just finished studying. Artaxerxes is the man that's associated with Ezra chapters 6 through 10. And also the book of Nehemiah. So in the book of Nehemiah, we'll deal with two kings, Artaxerxes and just very, very briefly Darius II. So again, Cyrus, Darius, Xerxes, Artaxerxes, and Darius II. These are the five primary kings that a serious biblical student will at least need to have in the background of their mind as to how these things play out. What I'd like to do for just a moment, though, is focus in on on these two men. Xerxes, who we learned a lot about in the study of Esther, and the man Artaxerxes, who's the king when this story opens. Xerxes had more than one son he had a son named Darius who was the oldest son and then he had Artaxerxes well Xerxes approximately eight years after the events recorded in the book of Esther on August in August of 465 BC Xerxes was assassinated so about again eight years after the events of the book of Esther are finished history tells us that Xerxes was assassinated by a man named Artabanus. Artabanus was the captain of his bodyguard. He was a close, personal, trusted associate. And Artabanus killed in the history text. Aristotle has one view. Ancient Persian historians have another. It's kind of hard to put them all together. So we don't know who was exactly killed first, but this man, Artabanus, who was a trusted associate, killed both Xerxes, or had him assassinated. Had Xerxes assassinated. Remember, he's Esther's husband. Has Xerxes assassinated him and either right before or right after, has his son Darius assassinated? This is a Darius that's very little known in history. The only thing we know is that he was killed by this man that was in Xerxes' court, Artabanus. Artaxerxes, who's Darius's little brother and Xerxes' son, doesn't take too kindly to that, as you might imagine. So since Xerxes has been murdered by Artabanus, then Artaxerxes uh, offs are That's just the way it worked in the ancient world. You kill somebody, you better watch your back because you're allowed to be killed too. So they have all this palace intrigue, all this murder. But when it's all said and done, the man named Artaxerxes is now the Persian king. What happened to Esther, we don't know. Nothing, nothing historically after the book of Esther will tell us what happened to her. But we know her husband was murdered approximately eight years after the Jews were rescued. There's another question that comes up, and I can only speculate about this, so so don't write it down, but we have to speculate as to who the mother of Artaxerxes was, because remember, Esther is the queen. There's nothing historically at all, biblically or, or otherwise, that said Esther had any children. But Persian historians believe that Artaxerxes was the offspring of Xerxes and Vashti. Remember Vashti, the queen that had been... So I put Vashti with a question mark here. We don't know if that's who Artaxerxes' mother is. But it's very, very possible that um, he was the son of the queen that is present at the beginning of the book of Esther. At least that's the view of ancient Persian historians. When they put the the Hebrew name Vashti together with the Persian names, there's there's at least some evidence that that's who Artaxerxes' mom is. But the point is, Artaxerxes is the Persian king at the time that the book of Nehemiah opens. Now, the book of Nehemiah opens this way. In in chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now, it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year while I was in Susa, the capital. Susa is actually the summer capital. Uh, There was another capital other times of the year. That Hanai, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and survived the captivity, and about Jerusalem, it, it turns out that this man probably is his blood brother. Sometimes we look at kind of corporate brothers, but this man probably is his blood brother. And when he talks about the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity, he's talking about the captivity of the Babylonians and the Persians. These had escaped and gone back to the land. The land, in, in particularly in Jerusalem, they said to me, "The remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress." and reproach and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. This is not new news, most likely, to Nehemiah, but it's a reaffirmation of news that he's heard before. Because you recall before that this was a problem. This same king, Artaxerxes, is going to stop the rebuilding of the wall. So Nehemiah is in a position to know, but this is reaffirming something that he had heard before. Um, The month Kislev corresponds to our November, December, late November, early December, perhaps beginning around the time of Thanksgiving. The year in view was the 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign, which made it probably 445, perhaps 444 B.C. Susa is the, I'm sorry, I said summer capital, but it was the winter capital of Artaxerxes, not the summer capital. We already learned that in Esther chapter 1, verse 2. So Nehemiah gets this news. The news is that things are not going well in Jerusalem. Nehemiah's response, his reaction rather, is something that's very interesting. Verse 4. Now it came about when I heard these words. I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. His reaction is appropriate. It grieved him greatly that Jerusalem was in this situation. But what's his response? And this is one of the, I'm glad that it's happening right in the beginning, because it's one of the most important things that we're going to learn from this book of Nehemiah. His response is to fall to his knees and pray first. He's a man of action. And a lot of times, men and women of action go right into action when they see a problem. But this is a man of action that prays before he goes into action. So Nehemiah's response to this very, very negative situation, his response to this grieving and and just a terrible thing that he has seen, his response is going to be prayer. Now listen to this prayer. It came about, I'm sorry, in verse 5. And I said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open to hear the prayer of thy servant, which I am praying before thee now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, thy servants. The first thing that that Nehemiah does when he opens his mouth to pray is not all that different than the way our Lord taught his disciples to pray. Matthew chapter 6 the disciples wanted to know how to pray. Everybody else's disciples seemed to know how to pray. Jesus' disciples wanted to know how to pray as well. Should we pray like the Pharisees and stand in the street and repeat things over and over again? Jesus says, no, don't no, do that. When you pray, you pray like this. He says, start off and you pray to your Father. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's old English. Most of us have no, no connection between that word hallowed but it really means, may your name be so exalted over every other name that's ever been named that we bow down and we worship before you. That's really what hallowed be thy name. May your name be set apart. May you be exalted. There are a lot of different ways to say that. And I'm, I've am i always been against formulaic Christianity. When I was a kid in high school and we would be about to go out for a football game, our coach was a Catholic gentleman and, And it was his practice for us to recite the Lord's Prayer before every game. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we just kind of chanted it. It was really not meaningful at all. I was looking around seeing some of the guys that were reciting it, and I knew they weren't anything but Christians. But it was almost like a good luck charm that we were doing. It was formulaic. It it really meant nothing. That's why I don't don't really like it when people write prayers uh, for me and say, here, Read, read this prayer. You see a prayer in a book. It's nice to have them recorded. It's, it's okay because you see some of the things that are on people's minds. But God doesn't want us necessarily, when we open our prayers tonight, when we go to bed, he doesn't want us to go to Nehemiah and say, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those loving. He already knows that. He wants to know what's on your mind. That was what was on Nehemiah's mind. What's on your mind? Do you have any of that theology in your soul at all where you could open up your soul and say, Oh, Lord God of heaven, my creator, my redeemer, my sustainer, my savior? Or, or do you have to borrow words from somebody else? Now, s- now sometimes I know that's it's okay. But, but what I'm talking about is we need to get away from just a formula where, okay, these are the words that we should say. It becomes ritual without reality. It just becomes a ritual when we're all chanting something that means nothing to us. I fear sometimes we sing our songs that way, but that's kind of a different subject, so I won't go there tonight. We need to participate in the meaning of these things. And Nehemiah is pouring his heart out. He is recognizing the one to whom he's speaking. At the same time, he's praising him. Now now listen to the words again with that in mind. I beseech thee. This is passionate. He's begging God. Sometimes we ask, is it okay to beg God for things? Spiritual giants did it, so i got no problem with it. I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. He recognizes to whom he's speaking before he ever opens his mouth with regard to anything else. We would do well to do the same in our prayers. Now, while I don't like formulaic Christianity... I do believe it's a good thing to study the greats of the faith and see where their minds were, what their routines were. We don't have to mimic their specific words. But it would be nice to see what their prayer lives look like. George Mueller, the great uh, Englishman who did so much for orphans, it, it's, it's inspiring for me to read his biography, see some of the things that he did. But I don't have to try to figure out, get a list of his prayers and, and recite those word for word. It may not be mine. I need to own it. But this is an example of someone who owned it. He's praising God and he's recognizing for who he is right off the bat. Then in the middle of verse 6, he says, On behalf of the sons of Israel, thy servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against thee, I and my father's house have sinned. It's a little different in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you do find people like Ezra and Nehemiah praying and confessing on behalf of the whole whole nation. Like a corporate confession. In the New Testament, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have to do that ourselves. We can't just appoint somebody and say, okay, uh, Cam, I want you to confess our sins for us tonight. You know, that's, that's not the way it works in this dispensation. We need to do it individually. But back then, you did have somebody that confessed on behalf of all the people. And there was a certain dynamic there that is not a New Testament dynamic. But he confesses on behalf of all the people say, we, have, we are not living like we should. He confesses his sins, I and my father's house have sinned. So not only everybody else, it's not just them, but it's me too. We we're all haven't been doing the things that we're supposed to do. We made quite a bit about the fact that Mordecai and Esther were still in Persia when they should have been back in, in, in the land. Maybe Nehemiah should have been back there too. You're going to see a little bit later he's got a great position in the government. But it looks like perhaps that's one of the things that he's confessing. But he's going to correct it as soon as he has the opportunity. First, we have praise and recognition. And then second, we have confession. Does that sound familiar? That's a typical pattern of a New Testament prayer as well. And I say pattern. There's not a a specific prescription. Perhaps what's on your mind is so heavy in terms of your own sin, you need to boil out your confession right away. Lord, this is what I've done. But we're talking about things where there's not a crisis at a particular moment. Now look in verse 7. We have acted very corruptly against thee and have not kept thy commandments, nor thy statutes, nor thy ordinances, which thou did command thy servant Moses. This is the Deuteronomy 28 connection. And then in verse 8. Remember the word which thou didst command to thy servant Moses, saying, If you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though those of you who have been scattered were in the midst of remote parts of the heavens, I will gather them from there and I will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. That's right. That's right straight from the law. Deuteronomy chapter 28. If you obey me, I'm going to bless you. If you disobey me, I'm going to curse you. But if you disobey me and come back to me, I'm going to restore you to my fellowship. So he's reminding God, not because God has forgotten, but because they've forgotten He's reminding God of the promise that he's going to base the rest of his request upon. Again, that's important. You're not telling God something he doesn't know, but you're reminding yourself of something. So he's going back to Deuteronomy chapter 28. There's a a definite connection with the law here. And he is recognizing a promise that has already been made. And he's going to base his request upon this promise that God has already made. Nehemiah is a thinker. It's not just a shotgun prayer at all. So first, praise and recognition. Second, confession. Third, there's a recognition of a promise. And then finally, he gets to the request. Verse 10 again. And they are thy servants, the people whom thou didst redeem by thy great power and thy strong hand. O Lord, I beseech thee. There we have that term again. May thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and the prayer of thy servants who delight to revere thy name. And here's the request. And make thy servant successful today, and grant him compassion before this man. Who's this man? Artaxerxes, the king. Now, I was the cupbearer to the king. Humanly speaking, the only person that can make it possible for Nehemiah to help the Jews in Jerusalem, humanly speaking, was Artaxerxes. He's the one that had issued the edict that the wall has to stop being rebuilt. He's the one that's going to have to unissue that edict. That was Ezra chapter 4, verse 24. So he's the only one that can reverse it. That's why Nehemiah prayed specifically give your servant success today by granting him favor. That's literally compassion in the presence of this man. So he's referring to King Artaxerxes, who we discussed a moment ago. A favorable relationship with the king could open the door for his desire to go back to the land. As the king's cupbearer, he was responsible for tasting wine or perhaps even eating food before the king ate it. We've already kind of talked about the intrigue and the assassinations in this whole uh, house of of Xerxes. Artaxerxes wasn't a foolish man. He already knew that if his father and his brother were assassinated by someone who was really, really close to them that very possible might happen to him too, so Artaxerxes, like other kings, had people that were that would taste things for him, and they would taste him, and I suppose they would watch the response of this person, and if they didn't, they didn't kill or dead, then perhaps they'd eat. Of course, that's only if you're using a fast-acting poison, but if you're using a slow poison, maybe you're going to get the cupbearer, and you're going to get the king too, just depends on how long it takes. But this was his job. That There's pro- there probably more to it than just that, though. This would have been an extremely trusted position within the kingdom. And it's very likely that he, that he held something like the positions of Daniel and Mordecai before him. Something like a prime minister kind of position. Something with a certain amount of authority. But the, the point being is he does have access to the king on a regular basis. But as we learned in Esther, you don't just go talk to the king about anything you want to talk to him about. Uh, Even though he was a very favored servant, he still needed God to help him with this man Artaxerxes, who is a pagan king. He wants Artaxerxes' help in undoing a previous decree. That's not the easiest petition in the world to ask a king to do, because when the king does it, he probably figures he's right in doing it, and you're going to say you're going into the king saying, "Hey, would you mind changing your mind about that?" You know how you how you shut this down before any chance you might reopen it. There're going to be egos involved and, and so forth. So this is a very important time for Nehemiah. As we begin chapter two, we're going to see that the prayer is answered, but this is as far as we're going to go tonight. But the point of this first chapter is that even though Nehemiah was a man of action, he's a man of consistency and persistence. He's a guy that gets things done. He's going to get a wall rebuilt in 52 days that had been been laid in ruins for decades upon decades upon decades. Even though he's a man of action, he knows where his bread is buttered. And in the first chapter, the message that we take from this is that prayer precedes action for the faithful believer. That doesn't mean what this passage is not telling us that prayer takes the place of action for the faithful believer. Action is necessary, but prayer must precede it. We turn it over to Him first, and then we get out of bed and look at the one ads. We get out of bed and we go to work.